One thing as I have um, noticed through the last couple weeks is um, as, I, as I get older, um, I, there's a lot more friends that I have that are sending kids off to college. Uh, I start realizing that uh, I'm starting heading towards that age. I started a middle schooler this year, so I'm getting, I'm getting older and I'm old enough to watch friends uh, send people off to college. I have a nephew that went off to college uh, recently and a niece uh, just two years ago. And as a parent, I think you spend 18 years teaching and shaping and molding and modeling for your children and then sending off. And you just wonder, like, do, do they know how to do their laundry right when they get to college or how to make a meal that's not in the microwave? Or do they know to change their sheets with some regularity? Um, I will speak uh, just from living in a dorm that not everybody learned that lesson very well. Um, do they know these things? Or even the bigger questions, do they know how to navigate heartache when it comes without the embrace of the home that they had before? But it's part of maturing. It's part of what it looks like to, for kids to grow and to step out. It's what parents sign up for when they are parents. They know there's going to be this moment to send the children out of the house. But what does it look like for you and me, particularly in relation to Jesus? What's it look like not to leave Jesus, but that at some point there's a transition of learning from Jesus to being sent by Jesus. And, and I think we get a little picture of that today, of these disciples. This is sort of their first, we haven't seen them do a whole lot up to this moment, but this moment of transition that I think is part of the story. But at first we're, I think, introduced to a problem, and then we're introduced to a solution, and then we're given some parameters around that solution. And so here's, here's the problem, uh, starting in verse 35. Uh, though verse 35 is not the problem. It's Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So the last kind of four and a half chapters have been uh, teaching, teaching of the kingdom, teaching of the gospel. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is unpacking, all this kind of stuff. And then he was healing. We saw a lot of particular stories of different people he healed, how he healed them, um, in the context of which he healed them. So it's almost a transition, I would argue, right here to the next section of Matthew. Matthew's actually really broken down into five big sections. Um, there's five long dialogues that Jesus has throughout Matthew's gospel. And if Matthew is very much working to present Jesus as sort of this Moses-type character, kind of Israel as well, that makes sense. Because uh, what they know of the Torah, Mo the book of Moses, is five big books, five big sections. And so I think we're getting this transition moment to the next long dialogue. And Jesus has, or, uh, Jesus has spent three chapters teaching his people what it looks like to be a follower in his kingdom. We, we certainly saw that in the Sermon on the Mount, but then he spends two chapters teaching and healing and living out the Sermon on the Mount and who he's interacting with and what his kingdom is about. And then we see this unique transition he says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he looks at the crowds gathered around him and they are harassed or distressed or troubled. By whom? This is a legitimate question. Like, by whom? I'm not hypothetical. Who's harassing the sheep? Yeah, maybe. Who, who has been the headache so far in the storyline? Yeah, Pharisees much more. 
We actually have heard very little actually about Rome so far in the storyline. But in every sort of story, in every sort of transition point, whether it was around the wine and wineskins, whether it was just verse 34 where the Pharisees are causing some problems. I think, I think in Matthew's gospel so far, that is the harassment, that is the people that he is targeting, this certain kind of leadership. Because he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now does that phrase ring any bells? Particularly if you know your Old Testament. So there's an imagery that we have heard that, and this is a hard question because this gets into prophets that most of us don't read. Yeah, Ezekiel's a big one. There's a lot of them. I think Jeremiah uses this language. Zechariah uses this language. First and First Chronicles, first, or Second Chronicles, First Kings, Numbers, Isaiah. So we have just a few of them. The Jeremiah 50. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. Ezekiel, which Sarah referenced. You eat the fat. So this is a condemnation on the shepherds. You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not have bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. Uh, and you force harshness and you have ruled them. What has Jesus been doing for the last couple chapters? healing, caring for the injured, caring for the weak, all that. So they were scattered because they were no, have no she- there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountain and on every high hill, my sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth and with none to search and to seek for them. Zechariah 10, therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Second Chronicles or First Kings. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep who have no shepherd. Or Numbers 27 or Isaiah 56. It is constant actually quite a bit in the Old Testament. And, and every time, it's a problem of Israel's leadership. The leadership of Israel is failing the people of God in their leadership. That's the context. So when Jesus says to a predominantly Jewish crowd and Matthew's predominantly Jewish audience, they were like sheep without a shepherd. I don't think their minds would go to Rome. I think their minds would go immediately to the failed leadership of Israel. Whether it's the Pharisees, whether it's the priests, the various official leadership that was going on in Israel. Jesus, I think, is drawing parallels to his time related to what had happened before. And this is the context of which Jesus will make his next statement, where he says, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So in this gap of leadership, in this failed world of leadership, in this context where God's people are struggling and harassed and helpless, they are sheep that just need some shepherding, they just need someone to model the kingdom and to care and to love them. There's people ready to be shown and to be told and to be guided in the way of the kingdom. The harvest is there. Is ready to be gathered. We just need faithful people to show up and tell them. We need workers. Now, I've often heard that line, and maybe I'm disagreeing with even something we talked about last week. Sorry, Rory. But I've often heard this line in the context of, like, let's go evangelize people who haven't heard the gospel before. And I'm, I'm not sure that's happening here. I think we'll get there. I think by the very last chapter of the book of Matthew, I think certainly in the book of Acts, we certainly get commissioning to go to the nations. But it does not read, hey, these people are goats and we really need to make them sheep. It does not say, hey, there's an empty field and we need to go plant the seed of the gospel so that we can actually eventually have a harvest. It speaks of something that's ready right now. Now you could disagree with me, totally fine. I, this is an interpretive opinion, right? 
This is how it works. We have core things we hold very tightly. We have um, sort of next level things that like, we can disagree on, but it becomes a little more frustrating. And then we have things that are like, look, like, this is how I read it. We, we could disagree. Rory might disagree with me. It's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing. If a church all agrees all the time, that's called a cult, and we should avoid that. Um, it's okay. It's okay to disagree. But it comes an interesting question even to ask. Like, if you're, if you're a Jew, so let me, let me put it in this parameter. So we are today waiting for Jesus to return now, right? We're, we're waiting. We're waiting for the Messiah in, in a unique way, not the, quite the same way as the sort of first Advent waiting was, but we're waiting. Now, let's say Jesus returned in a way that we didn't quite expect him to, and he ended up walking around D.C. or something, I don't know. And some messengers came to us and said, hey, Jesus has returned. He's, he's, uh, he's saying stuff that's in line with the Torah, but it's, it's different enough that we're sort of even thinking he's trying to abolish the New Testament or something like that. But he's saying this kingdom, like the Messiah has come and the kingdom is coming with him. And we heard that message and we're like, okay, I agree with that. Now, this is a wonderful question. I don't have an answer for it. Is that conversion? Is that repentance and continued belief for a Jew who's hearing the kingdom is at hand, the Messiah has shown up? It's, it's an important question because it gets into, I think, some of the stuff we're dealing with here. It'll get into the book of Acts. And, and hear me, I don't, I don't have a clear question, answer to that. Um, and so it, it's, it's just part of it. And so we have these lost sheep. And if the sheep here, the kingdom has shown up and the Messiah, is that a conversion moment? Is that a maybe repentance? Oh, we've been living this way or we thought this way and now we're aligning with the kingdom because they're followers of Yahweh. They're probably observers of the Torah. And so I would argue there's a harvest to be had. There's people who are, who are already following Yahweh out there. There's people who believe the Torah and are living out the Torah. There's people waiting the Messiah who just need to hear that the kingdom has come and what that kingdom is like in its fullness. And, and so go to them. It's a harvest. It's ready. I think that's what's at hand in the story. Now, Matthew 28 will be a different story when they send to the nations. But here, that's not what we see, right? Because what happens next? He calls out his 12 disciples. So he said, pray for some laborers because there's a harvest. Hey, you 12. Why don't you guys go? And he gives them authority. He gives them authority to go do the very things that he's been doing, to, uh, to go to unclean spirits, cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And they named all disciples, but I'm not going to fully cover that today. These 12 uh, Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere along the, among the Gentiles and enter no towns of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So which sheep are like sheep without a shepherd that we just heard about? And then we hear... Go to the lost sheep of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So what does Jesus do next? Sends the laborers, right? And to whom does he send them to? The lost sheep of Israel, right? The sheep that are oppressed, the sheep that are scattered, the sheep that are struggling under the lack of a shepherd. But I think we miss the real beauty of what just took place. Because yes, we can get hung up on whether we consider this evangelism or not. That's fine. But there's a unique transition that happens here. Like, Jesus has come. 
proclaiming about the kingdom, proclaiming about what his kingdom is about. He gave a Sermon on the Mount of what life is like in the kingdom, and then he goes and he lives out the Sermon on the Mount with whom uh, the Sermon on the Mount, I think, has a focus on in the galley. He's casting out demons, he's healing, he's bringing mercy to the people. And he looks upon the people and he's like, look, they're lacking a shepherd. My people, Yahweh's people are lacking a shepherd. So what does Jesus do? Turns to his people and says, go. Go to my people. It's the very thing, and do the very thing that Jesus has been doing. And it's incredibly, like, rabbinic. It's, it's incredibly very rabbi-disciple-oriented. Because what, what, is, what is the meaning of the word disciple? Like, in a, in a very basic way. What does a disciple mean? Yeah, it's learn. Mathetes in the Greek is, is a learn. It's, it's someone who learns. That's simply it. Now, it had developed into a rabbi-discipleship relationship, but it's a learner. And so what a, ra- what a disciple does is learn from the, from the rabbi, who the rabbi would have a sort of come and see. Come and see what I do. Come and hear my teaching. Come, and then eventually go and do. That is the relationship between a rabbi and a disciple. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus has done. That is essentially what discipleship is. And this is what the disciples are stepping into. You do the things that the rabbi taught. You don't just go, well, that's wonderful. Jesus can do that. But then Jesus comes along and says, now I need you to go do that. It's the tired cliche but that, that we are covered in the dust of the rabbi, that, that we are following our rabbi so closely that his dust kicks up and we are marked by it. Now, I'm so curious. This is always a wonderful side note of what the disciples actually went and preached. I mean, certainly that the kingdom of God is at hand, but guess what is probably not including? That Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected on the third day. That, that hasn't happened yet. And so, um, but it's still the gospel of the kingdom. And so sometimes I always want to challenge, if our gospel is simply about Good Friday and Easter and not bigger than that, then it doesn't match the gospel of the kingdom that is talked about in scripture. They don't have that yet. They're going to proclaim the kingdom of God and all that it entails, and they will come find out the entrance point to the, gospel, to the kingdom. It does include the fact that Jesus died for our sins, was resurrected. Wonderful. Those are wonderful things. But that's not the message that they have quite yet. Now, do we know how successful disciples are in their journey? I mean, if we keep reading, no, actually, we don't. We don't, we don't even hear them leave or come back. Uh, and, and I think there's two reasons for that. One, um, Matthew has a real big interest on keeping Jesus at the forefront. We'll get to the book of Acts where we start hearing all the wonderful works that the Holy Spirit does through the church. But Matthew's keeping our focus on Jesus. And he sends out disciples and we don't hear much. We don't know how successful they are. Just because they had the authority to heal every disease, does that mean they actually healed every disease they encountered? No, but they had authority to heal anything that could have come their way. And so that's what we know. We can't make very definitive statements. But let me camp on discipleship for a moment, because I think we toss the word around quite a bit and probably miss a little bit of it, because it's a tremendously important word, certainly, um, with a high level, I think, of discipleship, of that invitation, the come and see, and then a high level of challenge, which is go and do. Um, I'm picking up quite a bit from, from Mike Breen, who talks a lot about discipleship. And I think at church, sometimes we struggle with one or the other. I think there's, there's worlds where we struggle with the invitation. There's worlds that we struggle with the, with the go and do. And so sometimes we have what is like low invitation, low challenge. Some discipleship where it's like, 
hey, come. And like, you can be part of the family, but if you're around, if you come frequently, if you don't come frequently, it's no big deal. And we're not really um, challenging you to do a lot. Like, whatever goes, like, if you just want to be an observer, it's no big deal. What would that church be like? Like, what would the personality, how would you describe a church where, like, there's really low invitation, really low challenge? Yeah, passive, complacent. I think there's another word. I think the word bored is probably pretty good. It's like a boring church. Like, there's nothing, there's not a lot of real depth to the relationships and the invitation there. There's not a lot of real depth to the challenge and and sort of this boring world. What about a high invitation? Come be a part of this wonderful community. We've, we do life groups tremendously. We do all these sort of things. But we don't really actually call you to do a lot. We're going to have amazing services with the best music possible, incredible talks. But we're not going to really challenge you to do a whole lot. We're not going to challenge you to serve a whole lot. You can just kind of be complacent. What about that church? Without naming churches in our neighborhoods. Um, what would you say? Shallow, yeah, shallow, maybe wide, but not very deep. Um, yeah, performative is a good word. Uh, I, think, I think another word, um, this is more descriptive of the people like cozy. It's a cozy church. People feel warm and cozy. They don't feel challenged to do a lot. They just kind of feel like complacent. And this, is, this is good. I really like community. I really like the invitation to this. And then there's some that are like, kind of low invitation, but really high challenge in terms of discipleship. It's like, hey, like, you might be able to find community here or something like that, but what really matters, what really matters is that you sacrifice everything for the gospel, that you give up everything. And like, the invitation side's real low, but the challenge side's super high. It's like, go, give up everything, die to, die to self and everything, and let's go do it. If you find community, whatever, but let's go. What would that feel like? What was that? Yeah, tired, anxious, I think stressed. I think stressed is probably a good word for it. It's, just, it's like a stressed out church. It's, it's so high on the, the go and do without the sort of undergirding of like family and, and empowerment that comes from those sort of things. And then I think lastly, there's, there's the high invitation. Come and see, come, follow me disciples. Be this family. You will be this community. You will grow as this community together. And then we will challenge you as well to go and to do. And I would argue both of those things being wonderfully high things are really important for discipleship. I think Jesus does that with his disciples. He creates this community. That's a hobnob group of unique individuals, but creates this community and shapes this community, trains this community, builds up this community, and then sends and challenges. Um, we joked about it on our leadership on Wednesday, but um, uh, I'd heard from another church um, that when they go through their membership classes, one of the phrases that they say is that, like, if you're going to be a part of this church, we have a wonderful plan for your life. You may not have a plan for your life, but we have a plan for your life. And, but I think that's, that's true. Like, us as a leadership, as a church, like, we, we want to challenge people to grow and to step out and to go to places that probably are going to make them uncomfortable and to go to people that may be hard and to go, hey, Jesus did these things, so let's try them and to challenge discipleship. Now, where does he send the disciples? To those who claim Yahweh already as God. This is explicitly instructed not to go to the Gentiles or even the Samaritans who are like pseudo-Jews. 
and he gives them parameters. You received without paying, so give without pay. So Jesus isn't running a 12-week class on Instagram of discipleship. He's not trying to, he didn't make money in, in appointing these disciples, but I think it's important because the Pharisees, the priests, all those sort of things had various schools, various processes, and Jesus has been pouring himself out in discipleship without a formal money-making school and is sending his disciples to go do the same things. Acquire no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, and two tunics or two tunics or sandals or staff for the laborer deserves his food. So they're going to these towns with pretty much no monies or supplies. What will that force these Jewish 12 men to go do? To do what? Relationship. What will it require the towns to be like? What was that? Welcoming, yeah, hospitality. They, they will need to care for these people that come to town who have nothing, who have just simply a message. And Jesus said, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it, and the house is worthy. Let your peace come before, upon it. And if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust of your feet. And when you leave that house or town, uh, when you leave the house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. So disciples, as you go, take nothing with you. And you will need to rely on the hospitality of the people in these towns. And Luke unpacks this uh, very similarly, but just a few different verbiage. He says, whenever you get to the town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of uh, God has come near to you. And so it's a very similar kind of moment of going to these towns and see who welcomes you in. And I think we undersell, uh, particularly probably because of our cultural norms, how central the practice of hospitality is to God's people, Right? It's specific instructions over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10. Love the stranger, therefore, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Exodus 22. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers or sojourners in the land of Egypt. Exodus 23. You shall not oppress a stranger. You know the heart of, um, of a stranger or sojourner, for you were also those in Egypt. Uh, Leviticus 19.33. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. And what other stories do we know of God's people, of some of the men and women of the story who have tremendous hospitality. What are some of the stories? Take Abraham and Sarah. Do we know a story of tremendous hospitality for Abraham and Sarah? Yes? No? Maybe? Right? They have three strangers come and visit them. And what do they do? I'll tell you what they do. Sarah cooked like 70 pounds of bread. Like, it is crazy. It will come up again in one of the parables uh, that Jesus tells. But she goes out of her way, and it's coming right off of um, Abraham experiencing his adult circumcision, yet he goes and hustles to take care of these three strangers. So that probably was not comfortable for him either. And so you have these tremendous stories of welcoming and hospitality in someone like Abraham and Sarah. Jethro himself, uh, with the Moses story, is like frustrated that they didn't invite Moses back so that he can show hospitality. Or... um, They're looking for Isaac for a wife, and so they send out a servant. And what does the servant find uh, when he eventually finds a spouse for Isaac? 
incredible hospitality by Rebecca, by her brother, all this sort of stuff happening. Or Manoah, uh, who doesn't want this angel to depart before this, um, he's able to cook a goat in the book of Judges. It's the, there's a Shumanite woman who has a special room just for uh, Elisha in this moment. This incredible hospitality. Or leaving Lot and the angels who welcomes the angels in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, it's a tremendous part of the culture of the people. And I think what Jesus is essentially saying, go to the towns, find the people who are living as I've called them to actually live. Go to those places. Find the people practicing hospitality. Find the people who are actually welcoming the strangers among you and doing the things that I've always called my people to go do. And when you get there and you find those people, the people of peace, as Luke will call them, make sure they know that the kingdom of God is near. That is like imminent. That's so close. They can, they can reach out and touch it now. It's here for them. But if you go to that town and people are acting not in line with what I've called them to do, move on from that. Don't stick around the people that call me by name and yet are not living out anything I've called them to be or to do. And we make this intense statement about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? This is a wonderful loaded question. What was that? Yes, exactly. So. Yes, we're going to get in Jude, and Jude will mention some sexual sins of Sodom as well. But up to this point in the storyline, up till now, Ezekiel 16 is really like the big indictment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does it say? As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughter. So this is um, the prophet comparing, speaking to Jerusalem about their sins and comparing it to the sins of Sodom. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Great, it'll be clarified. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, did not aid the poor or the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw. So the sins of Sodom, not caring for the poor, I would argue not welcoming those who are in need, all these sort of things. They, they are struggling. That, that was a big part of it. Now, yes, there's a sexual sin tied in, but that's not the point here. That's the sins of Sodom. They struggled with hospitality. Two visitors came, Lot shows them hospitality, the rest of the city certainly does not. And this is Ezekiel's words of condemnation of God's people, and I think Jesus is picking up on that, saying, look, if my people are not going to act as the way I've called them to live, then it's going to be worse for them. It's worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Now here's what we see here. Jesus' disciples sent out amongst God's people to go to God's people. They have a tremendous message of the kingdom of God. This kingdom that everybody thought they understood, that Jesus is giving a full understanding and picture of, and that is at hand, that, that the king has come to this earth to eventually rule and reign. That is the good news. Good news to healing broken people, the shalom of God that they're supposed to bring. Now, they're going to go to God's people, and some of God's people are just going to reject it. Now, here's where my mind goes. As I already said, I don't think this is fully about evangelism, so agree to disagree. But Jesus is saying, you will go and live this out, my kingdom. You will proclaim what my kingdom is about, which has included mercy as a centerpiece. It's included healing. It includes love and hospitality and grace. And you will go, and some of my people are not going to show you any of that. And I wonder how many times people here have the exact same experience. Like, one of the areas that breaks my heart the most, and I spend a lot of time probably listening to stories, sitting down with people, can be this very area, 
that Jesus is warning his disciples about. Which is saying, like people who have navigated trying to find a place in church, who have navigated coming to God's people hoping for love and hospitality and grace and mercy and all of these things. They're expecting the medicine of mercy to be amongst God's people and they've found rejection, rejection, abusive leadership, harassment amongst the very people that are called to not be that in the world. Have found it anything, has the church anything but a hospital with the medicine of mercy. And to be real, no church is going to bat a thousand at this, or to translate sports analogy, no church is perfect at this. But I even remember talking to someone this past week, and we were talking about these words of Jesus, and they said, there's, there's a lot of comfort actually in those words. To know that Jesus said, hey, you're going to go to some of my people, or at least people that call me by name, and they're not going to act like my people. Some will. And in those places, oh, show love, pronounce peace, share with them what the kingdom of God is actually like, pronounce these things. But those who don't, move on from. It doesn't take the hurt away. It doesn't make the cuts from the experiences less. But I think Jesus is simply saying, look, this is going to happen. You're going to go to some of my people and they're going to act terribly. And you're going to go to some of my people and they're going to be wonderful. And I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to make sure that we're a certain way. But I know I, what I'm ov- ov- overly cautious of is becoming the very thing that's worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. God's people not acting like God's people. And what would these disciples be known for, right? They're proclaiming the kingdom. But what else are they doing when they go to all these towns? Healing, driving out demons, all this sort of stuff. They're proclaiming the good news that the kingdom is at hand, but they're also acting as agents of healing everywhere they go. Everywhere they go, they're agents of healing in the world. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem like the church is known for being an agent of healing in the world, at least lately. But gosh, I sure hope resonate is. That we are people that bring good news of a kingdom and a king who has tremendous mercy on sinners like you and me. We don't bat a thousand, certainly. Sometimes we act like terrible shepherds. Sometimes we act like very stubborn sheep. (laughs) But I would hope, I would hope the culture, the reputation of what we are building here is towards mercy, towards healing. And maybe that's helping people walk through real struggles in our life, which is tremendous healing. I'm not just throwing out like, yeah, like the, hopefully we pray for physical healing and that happens, sure. But we can also bring spiritual healing, that we are agents of that, to lost sheep. And, and for those of you who are regular here, there are lost sheep who have struggled under shep- terrible shepherding walking through this door all the time, all the time. And we have an opportunity, all of us, in communities together, to help, (laughs) to remind them of Jesus who's the true shepherd. Like there's some verbiage of elders and stuff like that, some of the leadership of the church that gets connected to shepherding as well. But if we're not pointing to Jesus as true shepherd, we're failing as shepherds as well. But to help people learn, come to Jesus, 
be discipled and for us to be come and see, now go and do, and to walk with people through healing and through mercy and these wonderful moments. So as disciples, that we would be people who both say, come and see. Come and see all that Jesus has done. Come to the person who is the person who can actually heal our sin-sick souls. Come to him who died for our sins and was resurrected. Come to him. But in so doing and in coming to him and in learning from him and in being close to him and, in, and being changed by him, you're, he's also going to challenge you to go and do and to go into the world. The answer to the question is pray for the laborers. The answer to that is, is right here. This is the answer to prayer. We are now sent into the world. We have the information of Jesus. We've been imitating Jesus. And now we now innovate in 2013, what, 2023, whatever year we're in. <laughs> innovate in 2023 in the east side of Atlanta what this actually looks like. Because we're not in first century Israel. It's unique. We're going to have to navigate different things. And in so doing, we are agents of healing, carrying the doctor's bags of the medicine of mercy and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to a hurting and broken world, inviting sinners like you and me to be disciples in this kingdom and cleansed and restored through the very work of the cross. That's what we get to do. Some ton of practicals, it's go and do. Go imitate your, disciple, your rabbi in all that the rabbi has taught us. I don't think we have an information problem. I think we have an imitation problem. To go and do.